Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. One of the things I've wanted to take a closer look at for quite a while is what's going on at the United Nations in regards to the abortion issue, in regards to the issues of life and family that are so essential uh, to the flourishing of society. Because most people don't really pay attention to what's going on uh, at the international level in regards to these issues. Most people don't realize that decisions are made by people they've never heard of in conversations that they're not party to, and often at events that are never reported on. In fact, language about abortion inserted into international agreements, for example, can actually impact international law as a whole and can affect the work of pro-life activists on the ground. One of the things that I've found the most interesting about the Trump administration is that they fight on the abortion issue at the United Nations like no previous presidential administration. And I will be honest when I say that the extent to which the Trump administration is willing to go to bat for the pro-life cause at the international level has flat-out stunned me. Uh, they've, they've actually indicated their willingness to veto veto international agreements over language that seem to endorse abortion as health care, uh, to give you one example. And so in order to have a discussion about what's going on and to understand it better, I asked Austin Ruse to come onto the show and give us a bit of an idea of what's going on. Uh, Austin Ruse is the only guy to talk to if you want to know what's going on in, in regards to pro the pro-life and pro-family issues uh, at the United Nations. He's head of the Center for Family and Human Rights, or CFAM, uh, since shortly after its creation in 1997, and he's been the president of that organization uh, since the year 2000. Uh, just to give you a few other details on his background, he was the former he was the founder, pardon me, of the National Catholic uh, Prayer Breakfast. He's appeared on any number of cable network programs discussing the United Nations and what goes on there from CNN, CBS, MSNBC, and Fox News. So that would be the big four. He also has served on a number of various boards, including Catholic Action for Faith and Family, uh, the Veritas Center for Ethics in Public Life, and he's published a number of books, including... Uh, Fake Science, Exposing the Left's Skewed Statistics, Fuzzy Facts, and Dodgy Data, Dodgy Data, which was published by Regnery Publishing in 2017, and the award-winning A Littlest Suffering Souls, Children Whose Short Lives Point Us to Christ. So nobody knows what's going on at the UN level in regards to abortion and family issues like Austin Ruse, and he graciously agreed to come on the show and give us an idea of what's going on. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right, so my first question is, how did you end up involved in the pro-life movement? Well, I'll tell you, I was in uh, magazine publishing for many years. Uh, I worked at uh, Fortune, Forbes, The Atlantic Monthly, Rolling Stone. I helped launch a magazine at Random House, uh, helped launch a magazine at the Discovery Channel, um, and I had uh, a, a religious and a political conversion um, along the line and uh, decided I didn't want to do that work anymore. Um, and I uh, up and quit and uh, began volunteering my time with a, a Catholic priest in New York named John Perricone and uh, ran, uh, helped run an apostolate that he had out of St. Agnes Church. Um, and just kind of waited for the main chance to uh, to find something that would combine 
my interest in, uh, in religion and politics. And uh, one day met a young lady uh, from Canada um, whose organization, which was Human Life International Canada, which doesn't exist anymore, and they had raised uh, a bunch of money to open up, she said, a pro-life lobbying group at the UN. And this um, was kind of very much, you know, answered prayers. You know, my, my interest in politics is mostly in international affairs. Um, uh, uh, one of the books that, uh, that greatly influenced my conversion to conservative politics was uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's book called The World is a Dangerous Place about his time uh, uh, as U.S. Ambassador to, uh, to the Economic and Social Council uh, at the U.N., and, and so when she said this, my, my joke is that I literally heard bells ringing and told her that that job was mine. Um, and six weeks later, it was. And so that's how I got involved. It was, it was strictly through my interest in, in politics and religion and, um, and uh, the United Nations. So when did you, because uh, I've read quite a bit of your writing about abortion, and you write about it very strongly and very passionately, and presumably at one point uh, prior uh, to your religious conversion, you would have been pro-choice, or were you always instinctively pro-life and you never really had to reconcile yourself on that specific issue? You know, it was not an, it, it was not an issue that I, that I cared deeply about. Uh, I, you know, so I, I, I never felt compelled to take a position or against, um, I, I think that I, I, I recall uh, being grateful that it existed uh, because of, you know, immoral ways back in, 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 in those days. Uh, but, I, but I never took a political stance. I mean, it was funny because the crowd that I ran with in Washington, D.C. in those days were people who were running NARAL. Um, but, but again, uh, I, I, I have, I think I have always been, uh, instinctively conservative on political issues, even when I was a Democrat. So when you launched into this new job lobbying at the United Nations, this would obviously be a, a pretty steep learning curve. I know a lot of people who have been in the pro-life movement for decades, and you would know exactly what I'm talking about, who uh, really know what's going on politically on the ground in their own countries but actually have no idea what's going on on the international level, have no idea how many decisions are being made that we aren't influencing or even noticing that will actually impact this is the sort of work that, that pro-life activists do on the state level or in Canada on the provincial or federal level. So when you first arrived at this position, how did you go about developing a, a plan for uh, pro-life forces to influence the United Nations on these decisions, especially when a lot of the forces at play seem to sort of, you know, a layperson like myself to be almost impervious to outside influence? Well, I'll tell you, you know, um, I, I didn't create the, uh, the, 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 pro the UN pro-life movement. Uh, honestly, John Paul II did uh, when he made a call for people of faith to uh, join him at Cairo uh, in 1994 at the uh, Conference on Population Development. And so there were people, including the people who, who founded CFAM, I, I, I did not found CFAM, I, I was hired by them, you know, who, who went to Cairo. And so th there were an awful lot of people involved in the UN pro-life movement uh, prior to my arrival. I mean, yeah, sure, sure CFAM was the first, you know, full-time office um, 
uh, you know, the working exclusively on these issues at the UN. But, but that doesn't mean that other people weren't already involved. And so the groundwork uh, was really well advanced. Uh, we, we don't do really anything different today than those, you know, everyday amateurs did at Cairo uh, in 1994 and then Beijing in 95. So it's, it's just reading the document. Yeah. But having said that, I will also say that uh, the learning curve is, is really straight up. And we certainly know much more now than we did then. Uh, I mean, in, in the early days, you know, we covered the preparatory committee meetings at the big conferences, and then we covered the big conferences. Uh, but I, I don't think that anybody in the pro, UN pro-life movement at that time knew that there were six general committees of the General Assembly and that uh, our work was handled uh, in the third committee. Uh, or I don't think anybody covered all of the commissions that happened from the first of the year through the spring. So, so while the basics of what we do was established a long time ago, our, our understanding um, has, uh, has, has really deepened. And, you know, with regard to my own organization, you know, I have, I've, I've been doing this now for 22 years. Our research director has been doing it for 12 years. Our head legal guy has been doing it eight years. Assistant research director has been doing it for eight years. Um, so, so we have at CFAM built up a remarkable body of expertise and knowledge over the years. But it's still pretty much what folks did at the Cairo conference, you know. You, you, you get the document, you read the document, you, you, you identify bad language, you talk to delegations to try and get bad language out, you try to get good language in. That's pretty much what we do today. What was the first major challenge you faced when you arrived at the United Nations? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, I, I would have to say that the general feeling that we were uh, greatly disliked um, and right. even hated and that they didn't want us there and that they would fight to keep us out. Um, this, this was, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty much the same situation now, but we're so firmly ensconced. We've all got, you know, UN accreditation, so there's not a lot they can do to us, although they, they, they keep trying. As a matter of fact, there's something going on right now, which I'd be happy to tell you about. But, but yeah, that was, that was the thing um, that was uh, the, the most challenging in the beginning was, that, was the real feeling that we were on enemy territory, they didn't want us there, and that they would do almost anything to keep us out. For your average rank-and-file pro-lifer, who is, of course, very focused on the local, which is a, an extremely conservative thing to do, in regards to the fight against abortion, when you arrived at the United Nations and the experience you've had in the two decades since then, what are some things that happen at the United Nations that affect pro-lifers on the local level? And what are some things that happen at the UN that, you know, your average person should just be aware of? Because most people see the United Nations as something that deals with foreign policy differences. But very few people actually think about the UN in relation to abortion, even those who work full time to fight abortion. Well, you know, the, 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 the key thing to understand is that the U.S., along with a few other countries, have the most uh, radical, extreme abortion laws in the whole world. So the U.S., in terms of the law and abortion, is, is well ahead, exponentially ahead of where the U.N. is. Um, people may be surprised. You know, if, if there was a straight up or down vote in the U.N. on abortion as a human right, it would, it would lose. 
Uh, I mean, this is why they use, you know, these uh, synonyms like reproductive health and reproductive rights, right. because they know that they would lose an up or down vote. Um, so, so folks ought to understand that. Um, secondly, the, the, the threat at the, at the UN and because of UN documents is, is what a lot of people don't know about. And that's, that's, um, the, the, the argument of the other side that the repetitious use of certain phrases like reproductive health, uh, have created what's known as customary international law, such that, uh, and customary international law is law that hasn't been written down, but all the nations accept it uh, because they believe that it's, it's, it's a part of law that all the nations uh, act in the same way with regard to this particular issue uh, and therefore doesn't need to be written down. And so the argument of the other side is the repetitious use of certain phrases like reproductive health have created a customary international right to abortion. Um, so, and, and they have said this. If, if they say if Roe v. Wade is ever struck down, abortion is still the law of the United States because it's the law of the world. And, and they do say this. And, and, uh, and courts around the world do agree with that. And what folks ought to understand is that uh, at least uh, within recent memory, our Supreme Court has cited U.N. documents that we've never ratified. Uh, when the Supreme Court overturned the juvenile death penalty now many years ago, um, the, the, the majority uh, cited, uh, first of all, foreign law, and second of all, cited uh, a, a U.N. Convention on the Rights of the Child, which the U.S. has never ratified. Um, they, the, 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 the Supreme Court cited the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is one of the implementing documents of the uh, 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 international, uh, the, uh, the, <laughs> the Human Rights Declaration. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so they, they cited this Internet, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is a hard law document, but they cited a part of it that our Senate formally rejected when we ratified the treaty, that is to say on the death penalty. So the Supreme Court, certain members of it, have been more than willing to cite U.N. documents that we're not a party to, to interpret our own constitution. So I am firmly convinced that if Roe v. Wade is ever reheard in the Supreme Court, U.N. documents will be cited either by the majority upholding Roe or by the minority when Roe is overturned. So that's one of the reasons that we as American pro-lifers are involved. Uh, we're also involved because U.N. documents have a real uh, impact on countries around the world. So, so there's, there's a domestic reason to be involved and there's an international reason to be involved. So when you look back at, at your two decades working on the international level and the first few years, what were some of the, the, the issues that you faced, some of the, the more difficult ones and the, a few of the early key victories that gave you a lot of encouragement when you were embarking on what's now been almost a quarter of a century? Well, you know, um, the, the debates, you know, it's kind of funny. I say that the debates that we have today at the U.N. are, are identical to the debates that took place at the Cairo Conference in 1994. It is the attempt to, uh, to insert the phrase reproductive health and or reproductive rights and or sexual rights uh, into U.N. documents, binding and non-binding. Um, and, and that debate at Cairo and then at Beijing and then at the Rio Environmental Conference and, and on and on and on through dozens and dozens of conferences is precisely the debate that we had last week in the Security Council when uh, the Trump administration uh, threatened a veto of a resolution on uh, rape in times of war 
because it included a reference to reproductive health, which the Trump administration properly understands is is, is synonymous with with abortion. So, uh, it, I mean, it's it's funny, it's it's tedious. Uh, we have the same debates today that we had at the Cairo conference in 1994. Uh, now, the, the interesting thing over the years is, is that we have been very successful in making sure that uh, reproductive health comes out as many documents as possible um, uh, or, or that it, it is defined as excluding abortion. Or, you know, so, so this has really been the territory that we've been debating on. Um, you know, at, at the uh, one of the great victories was uh, the uh, uh, International C Criminal Court negotiation many years ago that called the Rome Statutes of the International Criminal Court. And the battle there was uh, a, a phrase that they wanted to use called forced pregnancy. Um, and uh, this was one of their backdoor ways of, of, of being able to say that uh, people who oppose abortion are, in fact, uh, uh, international criminals. Um, and so what we did with a number of member states is, is we ensured that forced pregnancy was defined to exclude abortion. As a matter of fact, it was a great victory. Uh, forced pregnancy is, is defined in the International Criminal Court as the repeated rape of a, of a woman during wartime, her deliberate confinement in order to change the ethnic composition of the country. Um, the other side is quite annoyed by that, but they've never come back to try to insert uh, forced pregnancy in, into a document, uh, although they're, they're revisiting that now with, with, a, new, uh, with a new treaty on, uh, on crimes against humanity, so it'll come up again. So that was a great victory. Another great victory was, uh, in fact, we gave an award to the president of Costa Rica many years ago because uh, the, uh, the French and the Germans tried to initiate a political declaration that would make a distinction between uh, reproductive cloning and so-called um, uh, uh, therapeutic cloning. Um, and so we were able to knock this down. And as, as you know, th th they say therapeutic cloning is, is the deliberate creation of, of a human being, of, of a human clone. Um, but then that would be acceptable as long as the clone was destroyed in research um, and that they were for that, but that they were against so-called reproductive cloning, which would create, you know, a, 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 you know, which would allow a cloned human being to, to grow to, uh, to uh, childhood, adulthood, so on and so forth. So working with uh, the president of Costa Rica and others, we were able to, to knock that down completely. So along the way, there have been great victories. Oh, for instance, we've got great definitions of gender uh, in UN documents. Again, at the International Criminal Court negotiations, we were able to get a definition of gender, which is men and women in the context of society. Uh, in the Beijing document, uh, gender is to be understood as it has been traditionally understood. So in all the gender craziness that we see around the world and in the United States, the U.N. actually has two pretty good definitions of gender. So there have been great victories over the years. There isn't a pro-life activist that I know that hasn't had some utterly surreal experiences in their work as a pro-life activist. What you do is different than what most pro-life activists do, but what would be some of your more surreal moments in the work that you're doing? Uh, <laughs> surreal. That's an interesting way of putting things. Um, gosh, I don't know. What do you mean by surreal? Surreal is sort of this moment where you can't believe that you're doing what you're doing, that you're talking to the person that you're talking to. Um, so in, in, for, for a lot of people, it's these just bizarre conversations with, with abortionists 
Um, I think one of the moments that, that sticks out the most for me is when I held a baby that had been pulled out of a dumpster in my hands. That was very high up there. So it, it, it runs the whole range of things. But there are things that you expect when you join the pro-life movement. And then there are the things that just happen to you that you never expected. And virtually everybody you know, has. It's interesting because, I mean, I, I almost feel like we do our work at uh, 35,000 feet. Um, right. I mean, we're not on the ground. We, we don't do, you know, uh, crisis pregnancy centers. Or we, you know, we're never at abortion clinics. I mean, we're uh, negotiating um, documents of, of an either hard law or soft law uh, 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 definition. Um, so it's, you know, it's funny because I don't know. I don't have an answer to that question. We, we, we mostly – what we do at the U.N. is we search for people who will support us uh, we rarely try to convince the other side because it's, it's almost a waste of time uh, at the U.N. Um, we don't have to have a majority at the U.N. to win. All we need is enough to block consensus. Um, so we don't have to spend a lot of time uh, trying to convince uh, those on the other side. So I don't know that I've ever had a surreal uh, experience, as, as, as you describe. When you're looking at uh, the last uh, couple of decades, one of the things that I've often been interested in is, you know, I get your newsletter and, and you've, you've referred quite often the last, you know, year, a little bit longer than that, to, to Trump administration officials at the U.N. actually doing the hard work of blocking resolutions, even popular resolutions, because of language that, that would uh, safeguard abortion that is put in those resolutions. But you would have been at the U.N. as well during the Bush administration, and George W. Bush yep. himself was very pro-life. But I get the feeling doing a lot of this reading, and correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, I would prefer to be wrong on this, actually, uh, that, you know, you have what's sort of colloquially referred to as the deep state, which, you know, means that regardless of who the administration is, there's this sort of army of bureaucrats that pursue their own agenda, irrespective of the views of, uh, of the man in the Oval Office. Is there a difference between the United Nations and those that were representing U.S. policy um, during the Bush years as there is during the Trump years? Well, you know, there were a, a lot of good people in the Bush administration um, working on U.N. issues, but it's, it, there's no comparison between the commitment of the Bush administration and, and what the Trump administration has been willing to do. Um, it, it, it is quite remarkable. And that, you know, and, and I don't know what accounts for it. You know, one of the problems during the Bush administration was uh, the Iraq War. And so a lot of the Muslim countries that would have naturally stood with us on some of the life issues uh, would not stand with the Bush administration, even when they agreed. So the Bush administration found itself uh, very much um, isolated when they tried to advance uh, certain pro-life issues. Um, the Trump administration has not run into that problem. Uh, but I'll tell you, the, the Trump administration, and we say this domestically, but we also say it internationally, has has been the most pro-life administration in our history. You know, um, the, the Trump administration, you know, last week threatened a veto over Reproductive Health and Security Council. The Bush administration would not even have considered that. They wouldn't even have thought of that. Um, you know, uh, this administration has a has a written policy that their negotiators are supposed to, you know, eliminate reproductive health from from documents. Failing that, they're supposed to qualify it with, with what we call the Cairo caveats, um, and they're good caveats. 
Um, and there was nothing like that in, in the Bush administration. Um, so th- there is that. And there are, are and it hasn't been easy with the Trump administration. You know, th- there have been people in, in the administration who are not with us on these issues, and, and, and they've worked against what we have been trying to do. Um, and then you, you look at somebody like Nikki Haley. You know, Nikki Haley has a reputation of being very pro-life. She didn't do anything for the pro-life cause at the U.N. I mean, nothing, nada. Um, that is not to say the Trump administration didn't, but, but certainly not with her help. Um, I mean, she, I, I, I'm convinced that she went to the U.N. to burnish her foreign policy credentials. Therefore, she was tough, you know, tough with regard to the protection of Israel and tough in Iran and, and, and things like that. And, and, and that's, why, that's why I think she wanted to go there, was to burnish her hardcore foreign policy credentials. But she, I, I'm, I'm, I suspect that she felt that her pro-life bona fides were solid enough that she didn't have to do anything for the pro-life cause at the U.N., and she didn't. Um, so, I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons why the Trump administration has been better uh, on the pro-life issue. I mean, I'm convinced overall that it's been better on the pro-life issue because uh, at the end of the day, the president, did, uh, first of all, did not feel strongly one way or the other on the issue, and therefore he was willing to do uh, uh, the bidding of those who, who fought for him, which included pro-lifers, and that he didn't care about the approval of uh, the, the elites, and therefore he was more than willing to take a very strong pro-life stand. Um, you know, the, uh, the human respect it can be poisoned, exponentially so, in a politician. And, and so I, I think that even good conservatives want the approval of the cocktail party circuit at the U.N. and in Washington, D.C., and therefore have not been willing to take as strong a stand as you and I would take. Uh, this does not seem to be the case with the Trump administration. Well, it's interesting. I have a few questions related to this topic, and, and these questions are segueing right into the, the topics that I wanted to talk about anyways. I went to the Trump inauguration um, with somebody from the Susan B. Anthony list, and then the next day I went to the the Women's March, just because I was interested to see what this was all going to be about, and, and I wanted to, I, I was there to report on it as well. So I was at this Women's March, and it was packed. It was probably bigger than the inauguration. I've never been at such a big event in my life. It was, it was just enormous. And I was there with another pro-lifer, and I know that the pro-lifers were saying, like, this is kind of scary, right? There's hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets of D.C., but I was looking at them a scream at the white house, you know, F you Trump hoisting these signs. The person running the main stage was Cecile Richards. And I remember thinking, um, the pro-life movement just won Trump without having to say a word because the only thing this guy knows how to do when somebody shoves him is to shove back twice as hard. And when Cecile Richards got on the stage in front of a massive mob and I was there, I read the signs. They, they called Trump every name in the book. They complained about his crudeness. How are we going to explain Trump to the children? But the, the woman's March was full of children. And I've never read such graphic and pornographic uh, signs in my life. And I've, I've been doing this for a while. And, and basically they, they ensured that Ivanka or Jared or the rest of them that are more, you know, part of the pro-choice liberals, uh, New York set, that there was no way that they were going to be able to broker a deal between Planned Parenthood and the Trump administration because the abortion industry preemptively declared war on Trump the day after he got inaugurated, and that's one of the things that put him on our side. Um, one of the things I found interesting is I've read the books that have come out of the administration so far as well, and and Bob Woodward quotes Steve Bannon as 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 pushing Trump on his abortion record. 
when he first discussed running and that Trump was like, uh, what, what, what has my position on this been? Like, he didn't really care about the issue. And so who and maybe you can't tell us this, but I'm curious, when you look at Trump's administration, who do you think uh, is such a driving force for the pro-life cause in that in that that administration? Because like George W. Bush was a very personally pro-life person. His description of why he was pro-life made it into his memoirs uh, uh, post-presidency. Trump was always sort of, you know, kind of squishy on the issue, yet his administration is willing to do unpopular things, hardline things, and stick to the pro-life script all the way through. Who in his administration do you think is the driving force behind that? Well, you know, I, I think that there probably isn't just one driving force. You know, he's got people around him who are very pro-life. Uh, Leonard Leo, for instance, who was, has been advising the judges from the very beginning and helped develop the initial judges list. Uh, Kellyanne Conway, True Blue, 100%, you know, movement pro-lifer. Um, you know, uh, there's a woman that nobody's heard of uh, named uh, Katie Talento, who is in charge of health care and the Domestic Policy Council, who is a movement pro-lifer. Um, uh, John Bremberger, who was the head of the uh, Domestic Policy Council, um, uh, Steubenville grad, Ave Maria, law school grad, you know, movement pro-lifer. Um, you know, he's had the wisdom to appoint people all over the administration who are movement pro-lifers. You know, uh, there's a guy nobody's ever heard of except a few. I mean, he's got a huge job. He's deputy uh, secretary number two at Health and Human Services, Eric Hargan, movement pro-lifer. You know, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Roger Severino at HHS, you know, just movement pro-lifer. Uh, Valerie Huber, movement pro-lifer. You know, you, you look all over HHS and in certain places at USAID and even certain places in state. You know, he has he has appointed people who are movement pro-lifers, not people who simply say I'm pro-life, which a lot of people say, but people who have really um, expended their lives in the pro-life movement. Um, so, you know, whenever an issue comes up, there are generally very pro-life people, movement pro-lifers who are right there uh, ready to give him the right words, give him the right policy. Uh, so I would say that there's not a single driver. I'd say that there are dozens of drivers. What's the most encouraging thing that you've seen about what the Trump administration is doing? Because there are people who say if Trump only gets one term, um, then perhaps the pro-life movement's association with him will do them damage. Um, but you're looking at, at, at policies that are being enacted at an international level that have a longstanding effect. So from your perspective, what has the Trump administration done on an international level uh, that will assist the pro-life cause for years to come? Well, you know, you know, he, he defunded UNFPA, which to me is not that important of a thing. Right. Um, you know, it wasn't a lot of money that UNFPA got. They generally go to the Europeans and have it immediately replaced and then some. Um, uh, Mexico City policy, I think, is very important. The fact that he expanded Mexico City policy to include the entire uh, global health budget, it, you know, is exponentially important. All of these will be turned back on the first day of the next Democrat administration. Um, you know, that's one of the problems with international issues is that it, it is generally the, you know, the, the within the purview of the executive branch. Um, but rolling back uh, language on reproductive health, I think, will have a lasting impact. Um, uh, caveating uh, reproductive health 
uh, and I'll, I'll just talk briefly about the, the Cairo caveats. Yeah. You know, our, our, our opponents uh, lost a lot at, 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 at Cairo. Um, you know, the, the Cairo says that abortion is a matter of national policy uh, and not of uh, multilateral, you know, organizations. Uh, it, it, it says it, it, it's put uh, abortion in, in, a, in, a bad, in a bad and negative light. Um, uh, so, the, so the Cairo caveats are very, very important. Um, and the fact that um, the, the Trump administration is, is, is uh, uh, four square in favor of removing reproductive health from documents and then putting the Cairo caveats can have a lasting effect on the debate. Um, I mean, this debate's going to go on, you know, on and on and on and on and on. Uh, but but th- what the Trump administration has done is to rally, I think, upwards of 60 countries who now know that they can stand up to the European Union, the UN agencies, and that probably will have a lasting effect. What are the half dozen like most pro-abortion countries and most pro-abortion drivers of, of, of pro-abortion language at the UN right now? Well, you know, um, the individual states of the European Union, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, Germany, France, um, the Nordic countries, uh, most especially, you know, uh, the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, uh, they're also, they also tend to be the, the donor countries who are therefore able to, to push their agenda really hard. Uh, Canada is bad. Uh, I mean, those are the leading countries, but there are other countries that follow, many in Latin America. We basically, we've lost South America, you know, we used to have very strong delegations coming from South America. We don't really anymore. Argentina used to be strong years ago. Um, Mexico has never been good, even when, you know, there's there's been a, quote, conservative in the executive office in Mexico. But but, yeah, the, the, the leaders uh, are, are countries the, uh, of the European Union or of the Council of Europe. What right now would be the most pro-life countries that, that you look to um, when, when you're there? The, the ones that sort of balance out the ones you just mentioned. The, the, the most what you faded out a little bit. Are the most pro-life countries, the ones that sort of balance out the ones you just mentioned. Well, I mean, the Holy See is very strong. Um, uh, the African countries, are uh, not all of them, but, but enough of them are very, very strong. Uh, of course, the United States. Um, you know, that there will be individual countries of Latin America who sometimes will step forward. The Caribbean countries can step forward. Uh, the Muslim countries can, can, can be very strong, though they're not, um, you know, pro-life in the way that, that we necessarily are. Um, so, yeah, you can't point to any particular country because we always have to cobble together a coalition of, of countries to stand with us. You know, Russia has been on and off for years, uh, and when they're on, they're very powerful. Um, um, so yeah, it, it, it depends upon the negotiation. It depends upon who's in the negotiating chair. Um, but generally we're able to put together a large enough coalition of member states to fight back to make it, uh, a victory for us, or at least, you know, competitive. So when you, uh, when you look at countries like Argentina, Mexico, as, as you know, a lot of the South American countries right now are sort of caught in these massive battles over abortion. We hung on to Argentina by, I believe, three votes last year. Would you say, looking at the delegations that are heading towards the U.N., that a change in law in those countries is inevitable? Or would you say that the pro-life majorities, even though they're narrower than they used to be in those countries, still have the ability to hold this off? You know, I, I, I cannot speak to the domestic pro-life policies in, in other countries. 
because that's that's really not what we do. I, I don't know the state of the pro-life movement in Argentina or Chile or Peru. Um, what we know are the delegations that they send to the United Nations. One of the sad things that happens at the UN is that, you know, countries that will have, you know, where abortion is illegal, for instance, they will send bad delegations to the UN. And they do that as uh, kind of as a, as, a, as a pressure valve, that they will send radical feminists on their UN delegation to kind of throw them a bone. And so you'll have 100% pro-life countries uh, with delegations at the UN negotiating in favor of abortion. Um, that happens quite a bit. Um, but, yeah, I, I can't speak to, you know, it, it's hard enough to know what's going on at the U.N. without right. knowing, you know, the domestic pro-life politics around the world. So, yeah, I, I can't answer that question. What were some of the most uh, damaging things that took place during Obama's eight-year tenure at the U.N.? Well, I mean, they, they, uh, they pushed uh, really hard, of course, on, uh, on, on, spreading, uh, on spreading reproductive health and reproductive rights and abortion. They pushed really hard in in uh, in pushing uh, sexual orientation and gender identity, um, which uh, is a highly problematic issue at the UN. You know, one by the way that hasn't gained much traction because you know uh, most of the delegations of the United Nations are against that as as, as a legal category. Uh, but but I I would say that the, the Obama administration uh, was more radical than uh, than the Clinton administration. So one of the things I've, I've found interesting about the UN is uh, I read uh, recently, I read Obi Anuji Koka's book, uh, Target Africa, where she talks about how uh, countries you you referred to earlier the, uh, to the Nordic countries as donor countries and how these countries will, will essentially use that financial leverage to pressure them on other issues. And there was one anecdote in her book where she uh, she said this African ambassador walked past saying it's just all about sex for these guys. Is that tension obvious at the UN, where you have nations that are are so busy working on existential struggles on the development of their countries and just can't understand why the only thing that a lot of the Western countries seem to want to talk about um, are like pelvic issues? Well, you know, um, I, I actually call them the pelvic left, um, <laughs> and and you know, we we've been talking about uh, you know ideological colonialism since long before the Pope mentioned it. At the UN, we're very grateful that Pope Francis did. Uh, I think I know the priest who put that in his speech, um, uh, and the the African bishops have met on this particular issue many times ab- about uh, the, the 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 pelvic left from Europe trying to impose their view in the name of human rights on on African countries. Um, you know, uh, uh, so so yeah, there, there is very little question. That uh, that Africa is uh, is a real battlefield in in the global culture wars. You know the, the 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 pelvic left wants to impose their view on every man, woman, and child all over the globe. And uh, you know I I, I got to give them their due. I mean they they think that this is the right thing to do. That that people will not be free until they are quote 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 unquote sexually free. And that you know the 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 two institutions that stand in the way of this freedom are the family and the church, and therefore they must be done away with. I mean, I absolutely believe that they believe this, and that, that's really what we're up against. Um, I mean, we, we consistently see um, very poor African countries willing to stand up to the, United, to, to the Europeans at the United Nations 
and they have a lot to lose. Um, they have money to lose, um, primarily, um, yet time and time again, they're willing to do it. I mean, the Africans are really quite amazing. I think that Africa will save Western civilization, but first we must save Africa. When you're looking at the current situation under the Trump administration, I guess you said that the work you're doing now is the same as the work you did 22 years ago. It's all about trying to get rid of pro-abortion language and, and insert pro-life language. But to somebody, if you if you had to give an encapsulation to somebody who's listening right now and wants to know uh, the answer to basically two questions, what's your most optimistic view of what's going on on the international level? And then secondarily, what's your most pessimistic view? Because a lot of people listening will have never actually considered uh, pro-life work on the international level. So that will give them a, a balanced view of what's going on. My most, you say my most optimistic view at the international level? Yes. Well, you know, uh, I, I, I think that uh, uh, on, uh, on the question of abortion, uh, the optimistic view is we will continue to block an international right to abortion. Uh, that they will never get an international right to abortion through U.N. documents. Um, my, my pessimistic view is that that won't really matter because, <laughs> you know, domestic judges around the country, around the world, are saying that there's an international right to abortion. And why are they saying this? They're saying this because U.N. bureaucrats, including the Secretary General, say that there is, um, even though there's not. Um, so, you know, the other side continues to lie around the world. And so optimistically, I think that with regard to the documents, we'll continue to win. And uh, pessimistically, um, we are facing many challenges around the world on the ground because of what people say about U.N. documents. One of the things, and this is a much broader question, but I'd, I'd be interested to hear your take on this, is do you think there's at any point going to be uh, somewhat of a, a, of a power shift in the dynamic between the countries who haven't replaced their population in, in, in years, right? BBC just came out with a report this month uh, noting the fact that there are now more grandparents in the world than there are children. And at some point, the nations that are reproducing their populations that do have uh, have an excellent birth rate are far more likely to actually you know, have sustainable populations. Do you think that at some point we're going to see a power shift between the nations with uh, you know, dying birth rates and those with booming birth rates? Well, there are really no countries with booming birth rates. That's that's part of the problem. I mean, the population controllers have, have largely won. Um, you know, it's, it's like every country in the world is below replacement except a few in Africa. Um, so uh, I, I, I don't know that there will be any kind of a, a, of a power shift um, be, because of uh, fertility reduction. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's a good question. Uh, you know, the, the UN, it's funny, gosh, 20 years ago, the UN had an expert group meeting on uh, population, on, on fertility decline. And the question before the experts, and I'll never forget this, was how low can fertility go? And the consensus of those in the room, and it was a fairly small meeting of, of uh, population experts, was they did not know how low it would go. So the UN has known for a very long time that that uh, that fertility re reduction is on a downward slide, and they don't know how low it's going to go. Um, you know, Japan became the first country in the world, and this was 20 years ago, to have more people over the age of 65 than under the age of 15, and now that's common. So the experts don't know what to do, 
You know, Russia has worked very hard to get their fertility rate up, and they've, they've, they've achieved it. France uh, has worked very hard to get theirs up, and they've, they've achieved it. I don't think they're above replacement. Uh, Hungary is trying very hard to, to, to get theirs up. Um, you know, the, the answer, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the answer is not a governmental solution. It's a spiritual solution because you have to somehow – work to get greed out of the human heart. Now, of course, that's that's a really hard thing to do. But, right. but I think, you know, one of the reasons that people are not having, you know, very many children is because, you know, it, at least in the West, they you know, they want the beach house, they want the European vacation and things like that. Uh, why is this happening uh, around the world? I, I think it's because they have convinced um, African women and Asian women that it's the smart sort of European thing to do is to have very few children, and they bought into the idea that children are a burden. How do you turn that around? You know, I think I think faith is, is one of the things that will turn this around, but ultimately, I don't know. Will government programs turn it around? There's limited success for that. Um, we, are, we are heading into um, what Donald Rumsfeld referred to as uh, unknown unknowns. As a final question, just for uh, the, the people who uh, often think the U.N. is this sort of nefarious, shady organization pulling the strings of the world while the rest of us go on in ignorance. And I, I'd like to demystify that for a moment. What, what you're what you're ex- describing uh, is, is actually just a, a group of people that are getting together and fighting about what goes into a variety of documents. So just uh, as a final question, could you just. Let our listeners know what it's what it's like at the UN, um, what your analysis is, and then and then finally tell tell everybody where they can find your work and where they can follow your work. My friend Jean Head, who is a longtime lobbyist for National Right to Life at the UN, she lives in New York. Uh, always said that she felt uh, the presence of evil when she would walk into the UN, um, and 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 you could certainly feel that. Uh, what people don't know is that we have many, many friends at the U.N. who need our help, uh, people on uh, foreign delegations to, to the U.N., e- even people in the U.N. bureaucracy, you know, will occasionally reach out to us uh, to ask for help or to offer us encouragement. So it, the, the re- quite remarkable thing is that we have so many friends at the United Nations, and uh, it, it's not completely enemy territory. Uh, partially, uh, particularly with with regard to the UN bureaucracy, but 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 not completely, um, and so that's what you experience when you when you go to the UN. It, it is also quite a remarkable experience to go to the UN to sit down and talk to uh, to UN delegates, you know, from foreign countries who are so happy to to have your support, so happy that you're there, um, and who feel overwhelmed themselves. You know, these people come from you know, poor countries, and, and they've got small delegations, and they'll come to the U.N., and they don't know anything, and they don't know anybody. And uh, here's a bunch of Christian, you know, lobbyists working to, to help them. Um, you know, I, I, I once told the Sudanese ambassador um, that, uh, you know, this was heading into a midnight negotiation. I said, you know, when things get really tough tonight, uh, right over there will be 20 Christians praying for you. And this was the Sudanese ambassador from a country that, you know, persecutes Christians. And he was he was a lion that night in defending you know the, the unborn child and fighting against the Europeans. So it, it is it is a, a quite a remarkable experience all these years to to, to spend at the UN. 
people tell, ask me, you know, when I'm out and about, you know, giving talks around the country, what can I do? And what I always tell them, and that's what I'll tell your listeners now, is stay home and take over the school board. If you feel called to come to the U.N., by all means, come. But for the most part, we need people taking over the school boards. Final question, where can people find your work so they can follow what you're doing? C-FAM.org, C-FAM.org. Um, people can subscribe to the Friday Facts, which is, uh, gosh, now 22 years old. Uh, it's the only weekly source of, uh, of U.N. Uh, stories coming out of U.N. headquarters on, on life and family matters. Uh, written as straight journalism to 500-word stories every week. We haven't missed a week in 22 years except during 9-11. Um, it's, it's quite a remarkable source of what's really going on at the U.N., uh, plus lots of other research reports and things like that. So there's a lot on our website for people who are interested in this issue. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with uh, CFAM President Austin Ruse, who runs the Center for Family and Human Rights, on what's going on at the United Nations and what every pro-life person should know and be aware of about what's happening at the international level. If you found this conversation interesting and you want to hear other conversations like it, please head over to LifeSiteNews.com for more episodes of The Van Maren Show. And while you're there, you can read a wide range of both opinion commentary and cutting-edge news on pro-life and pro-family issues. Thanks so much for joining us this week. And again, we hope you'll join us again next week.